we've been in a series called Jesus is Greater Than. And we've looked at a couple of different belief systems that our world has in it. That You may know some people that belong to different churches and different religions. And we've tried to look at a couple of those and to give you an awareness of what, uh, what other people believe. I think it's important for us to know that as we live in this world. We can interact with people and share our faith and know where they're coming from. So important. Today I want to tackle something a little different in this series. It's not so much a religion, okay? It's not so much a religion as an ideal, a philosophy something that we believe in if we are part of this country. And today I've entitled the message, Jesus is Greater Than the American Dream. Now, before I say this, i got to give some disclaimers. You're not going to find a more patriotic pastor anywhere in the country. I'm patriotic. My tears, uh, my eyes well up with tears when I hear the national anthem. I love being a part of this country. Uh, it's as deeply rooted, uh, I'm as deeply rooted in America as anybody, and I love it. But uh, what I want to tackle today is something that as Americans and as people who are kind of required to understand who Jesus is and what he's presented as we go through this series, what is it that Jesus presented? How does that differ maybe from the American dream? What is the American dream, first of all? American writer and historian James Truslow Adams best captured the definition of the American dream when he wrote these words. Life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone, with opportunity for each according to their ability or achievement, with neither social class nor the circumstances surrounding their birth being a barrier to success. Man, we believe in that. I believe in that. I heard recently, it's probably been a few years ago, that we have more first-generation millionaires in America than we've ever had. That the opportunity for people to attain success, to climb that ladder, to take an opportunity to try to acquire wealth and and all those things, there's so much more opportunity than there ever has been. Uh, Even though there are those that struggle, by and large, man, so many people do make it in this country and make it better than their parents. My parents wanted me to have it better than they had. I want my kids to have it better than I had, right? This is part of what makes us American. And so this dream's important. Well, what is the origin of the American dream? Where did that come from? Well, I think the American dream is rooted in the U.S. Declaration of Independence. That document created by America's founding fathers says two key things that are largely responsible for shaping what the classic American dream is. The declaration says that all men are created equal. That's very important. It's fascinating that our founding fathers wrote those words into who we are as a country. All men are created equal. And that each man or woman has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's a movie that I really enjoyed watching called, uh, with Will Smith in it called The Pursuit of Happiness. And it's a story of a young man who's married, and he, he's trying to find that elusive way to success in this country. And he chases it, and he tries different methods. And at times, it looks like he's not going to make it. In the end, of course, he's one of those success stories. We don't make movies out of people that aren't success stories, and so he did end up acquiring that. It's interesting, in the movie, he says that maybe acquiring the American dream isn't really what it's about, but maybe it really is in the pursuit. And so that was an interesting perspective that that, uh, that movie presented. But the American dream has this built into it, um, that we have this uh, right, that we're all made equal and we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, 
the American dream is perhaps the greatest philosophy of government and culture that's ever been invented and implemented. That's my opinion. I, I look around and I've studied a little history and I've been around a little while now and seen what other ideas are out there. And it's amazing to me what the ideals and philosophy that this country was built on, what they produced. Uh, remarkable what they produced in a short amount of time. You guys know as you look at civilizations and countries, we're very young, even now as a country. And yet so much has been done here. So much has been attained there's a drive, there's a, 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 a zest for life that we have. And we're able to overcome so many obstacles in order to accomplish and achieve great things. As amazing as this is, the American dream in America and this, uh, this creation as a country, I want to propose to you that it does not represent the greatest way to live. Let me say that again. As great as this country is, as much as I love it, I want to present to you today the idea that it is not represent the greatest way to live. The greatest way to achieve even the things that it offers. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. I want to postulate to you today that America, in and of itself, with the ideals and the freedoms and everything that's built into it, is not the, the greatest representation of that. The greatest way to live. There is a way to live that transcends the ethos, the culture, the prosperity, and ability for prosperity, the opportunity, the government, wherever human beings might live on this planet, whatever era they have lived in, there is something greater. There's a way to live, a way of believing and engaging each day that's altogether more powerful than any system of philosophy that you could believe in. It is a way of living that Jesus himself presented. As amazing as this country is and the promise of happiness it does fall short if we chase the way of life offered to us in America. It's going to fall short of delivering even on the things it promises. Pursuing achievement, wealth, family, love, pleasure, knowledge, and even understanding. All of these pursuits will leave you wanting for more, even after you've acquired them. Mathematician, physicist, religious philosopher, and wordsmith, by any standard, Blaise Pascal exemplified the term Renaissance man. He was born in, 19, in June 19, 1623, in Clermont, Ferland, France. Pascal established himself in his early teens as a self-taught mathematical prodigy. At the tender age of 16, he dreamed up Pascal's theorem. Switching gears, Pascal built one of the first digital calculators. I don't know if you knew that, back in 1642, to aid his father, who was a mathematician and tax collector. And that calculator, though it was simple, with a few uh, adjustments through the, um, by uh, the use of gears and pins, it could, it could perform integer addition. Um, it could also do uh, subtraction, multiplication, and even division. Pascal made this statement as a wordsmith. He put together this little statement that's been made famous. It's been passed down over the years. I want you to think about it for a minute. He said this, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. Pascal, as brilliant as he was, understood that the path to life was not something he could acquire through his intelligence, his giftedness, his ingenuity. It was something that required a greater 
something outside of himself. The genius of this statement is that it acknowledges that we have a spiritual need. The reason we have a spiritual need is that we are spiritual creatures. The Bible tells us that in the beginning there were two humans that God created, Adam and Eve. He placed them on this planet inside of a beautiful garden and he gave them a choice to obey him. He tested their character. He said, there is a garden you can live in. You can enjoy the whole thing, eat anything you want. There is one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from it. Well, of course, they were tempted by Satan to eat from that tree and they gave in to the temptation. And in doing so, sin entered the world. Sin was brought in a curse over all of creation. That sin, that curse, led to death. Sin, which is falling short of God's standard, leads to separation. And so this was brought to the earth. That one act of disobedience. Crucial decision. And so with that sin, death has entered our existence. We now face death. We had two funerals at our church this weekend. Death is something we have to wrestle with and grasp, grapple with, yet, yet God did not intend for us to die. It wasn't in his plan and will that we would die physically or spiritually. And yet though death, physical death is, is uh, scary and it's uh, ominous, spiritual death is even a greater, um, a greater issue that we must grapple with. Death brings separation from God. The good news is, once we acknowledge where we're at, is that God sent Jesus, his son, to bring life back to the human race. And what did Jesus call us to do? How did Jesus say that true meaning of life would be found? True joy and peace and forgiveness and redemption, the things that are so necessary for our happiness and our peace in life. How did Jesus say we would achieve those? Well, Jesus said that true life was found only in him. In John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, Jesus said these words, giving this illustration. He said, I tell you the truth. Anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold, rather than going through the gate, must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, so he explained it to them. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them rich and satisfying life. Jesus makes a profound statement. He says, listen, there have been those who have presented a way to life. There have been those who have come saying, hey, I know the way to life. Come and follow me. And we've been looking at that in this series. And that Jesus says, they were all thieves and robbers looking to steal my sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd, right? I'm the one that has the way to real life, satisfying life, rich life. Jesus says, I am the way to that. I'm the gate. I'm the gatekeeper to that kind of life. The American dream offers real life 
And I think the American dream is an, an amazing thing that I have certainly pursued. And I think when we have our perspective correct, we can appreciate it. And it's a great place to live and way to live. But the truth is that without real life, without addressing our spiritual need, the pursuit of life falls short. Jesus came to offer real life to us. And that's what Pascal is saying. The true meaning in this life is found only through a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's a gentleman I want to come and share with us this morning. His name is Brent Holiday, And many of you might know who he is. He's a leader in this community. He's been here his whole life. Uh, he has a business here. And God has uh, allowed him and blessed him in many ways. But Brent, when I first got to meet him, uh, we moved here almost just a year ago, and uh, uh, he invited me actually out to coffee or to lunch because uh, I was at a, a men's prayer breakfast, and he wasn't there, and he was usually there, and he said, I want to meet you. So we went out, and I got to hear his testimony, and it registered in my brain, and I thought, man, I want people to hear his testimony because God has led him through a process of discovering the, the, the limitations of the American dream. And so, Brent, I want you to come up and share your story with us, if you would. Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and you have been so, so good to us, Father. Father, I'm here to share my story. A story you've seen unfold, a story that you've watched. And through it all, Lord, you've been faithful and you've waited. And you brought me to a place, Father, where I'm in relationship with you. You are the living God, the God of Abraham. And Father, your way is so, so much better than our way. So I just pray that you would be with me to, through this, that the Holy Spirit would speak through me. And that, Father, you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. So Pastor John is right. The American dream, there's nothing wrong with the American dream. I have an American dream. You have an American dream. Sometimes those dreams are the same. Sometimes they're different. There's nothing wrong with the American dream. But when you start to have a problem is when you start to worship the American dream. And we're all going to worship something, all of us. For a long, long time, I worshipped that American dream. So let's go back a little bit, and I'll start my testimony with my born-again life. I was born again when I was about 13 years of age and did okay for several years. And then let's fast forward to my early 20s. I was active in church, active in uh, several things in the community that honored God, some that weren't. But my father turned his business over to me, and I started to run the business. And it went well. It went really well. Um, and we were successful by worldly standards. The problem is that wor worldly success seldom nourishes a healthy spiritual life if you're not careful. There's nothing wrong with worldly success, but it's what guide your life day in and day out in your decision-making where I started to lose it. You know, this 
whole COVID thing has been kind of good for me because I've gotten a lot of things done around the house that I probably wouldn't have done. One of the things that I had as a goal for this last week was to clean my garage. And that didn't happen. So next week, if any of you have any free time, look me up. But, uh, you know, I got to looking at the garage the other day, and the reason I decided I needed to clean it up was because I was looking for something. I couldn't find it. My bench is just a pile of tools and used chainsaw blades and sanders or whatever. And there's cobwebs, there's dirt. And it happened day by day over a long period of time. It didn't get messy overnight. It happened day by day by being just a little lazy and laying this tool down instead of putting it back. And I need to clean that up. That's kind of, in a way, the way that my life went. We just were pretty successful in business, and things started to distract me. I wasn't praying like I once did. I wasn't attending church like I once did. I wasn't in fellowship like I once with, once was with people that could feed me spiritually. I paid time and attention to the business. I paid time and attention to networking. I paid time and attention to those things, which I needed to do to be a successful business owner, but it replaced what was truly important. And then 2008 came, and all of a sudden, this company that was just rolling along, we were hurt by 2008 in the recession. We never really did recover. And we were in trouble. And I started worrying about 230-some families that I had a responsibility to. And I wondered, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to make this work? How am I going to fight through this? Well, I can figure it out. I've got good people around me. I'm an intelligent man. I can figure this out. But that wasn't the case. And it just, we got better as things went along after 2008, but it never really did recover. Fast forward to December, Christmas of 2016. And my sister, I think she's here someplace, but um, he says, the reason I'm standing here today is because of several things, but one of them is God's grace. He never gave up on me. And the other was that Christmas of 2016, my sister gave me a devotional and said, Brett, just do a daily devotional. Just do a daily devotional. Well, I thought that sounded like a pretty good idea, and I had never written, read the Bible cover to cover, so I thought, you know, I'm going to start that, January 1st, 2017. I haven't missed a day since, and it's because my sister cared about me. My sister loved me, and my sister loved Jesus. And that has really changed me. And my prayer life started coming back. And those are awkward prayers at first. It's kind of like, hey, God, remember me? And, and it's like, yeah, Brent, I never forgot you. And it's like, well, I have some explaining to do. And it's like, well, what do you have to say? And I started doing some confessing. And those were my prayers the first few months, the first few weeks. And then I started praying about things in my life that needed repaired. One of them was the business. And I had no idea what we were going to do because we were in trouble. And just one major catastrophe, that we, unforeseen catastrophe could have taken the company down. And I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. A few weeks later, out of the blue, I was at work and I got a call from a guy. And he uh, talked a little bit and I said, well, what can I do for you? And he said, I was wondering if you ever wanted to buy or sell your company. And of course, I lied to him and said, no, I've never thought about that. <laughs> even though I had, and uh, 
he said, well, can we come in and talk to you? And I said, sure, that'd be great. So a couple weeks later, they flew in and they talked to us. That was March or April of 2017, and in November 14th, I sold the company. And uh, it was funny because there, we had several divisions in the company. One of them is called LTL. Most of you won't understand that. Some of you will. But I talked to my son, who was involved with the business, and we talked about selling. And, and I said, you know, I want to keep the logistics part of it. Because that's what I think is, uh, it's a lot less stressful, a lot less moving parts. And so I asked the guy, I said, well, I thought about it, but I probably, the only real part I really want to sell is the LTL part. And he said, that's all we want is the LTL part. And I was dumbfounded. And so here's this God that I wasn't very faithful to saying, here, Brent, I've got a solution for you. So we moved next door, built a new building. I kept the logistics part, and God has blessed that business. And to keep myself on track, I thought I need to put together a document of some kind that I'm accountable to, and that my leaders, who are my son Philip and Jared Ross, I said, we're going to sit down, we're going to put together a document that's going to be scripturally based. It's going to be based on the Word of God. So we did put together that document, and, and I had a friend uh, that's pastor of another church, and, and I showed it to him, and he said, let me go through that. And he came back to me a couple weeks later, and he goes, Brent, how are you going to measure any of this? He goes, this isn't a very good document. So I made up my mind then I would never ask him for advice again. So, <laughs> I'm kidding. I redid the document, and I took it to him, and he said, it's good. But what about this? What about this? So anyhow, we defined that document. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But we have gone back to that document time and time again and said, are we running this business the way we told God we would? The way that we promised God we would? The way that we told our employees we would? And it's been a litmus test for us time and time again. Are we on the right track? And things are going well. And that could change tomorrow. But if it does, there's a difference this time. I've got something that's a value in my life that no one can take away from me. I serve a living God, and he gives me wisdom, and he gives me direction. Um, we've had a lot of opportunities to meet some new people, bring people to town. I've met some amazing people, um, people that uh, have just overcome so many things in their life, a lot of you are sitting in the crowd today, and I appreciate the example you've been to me and the way you've fed me and the way you've fed my spirituality, the way you've fed my family, the way you've prayed for Susan and I. This has been a, an, an unusual year. We went to Israel in January, and I thought, this is going to be a great year. And then this little thing, COVID, popped up. And then we had a family illness pop up that was out of the blue. And uh, through all of that... You know, Susan and I had some great discussions through all of that, best discussions we probably ever have. And one day she goes, Brent, are you mad at God? And I said, no, I'm not mad at God. God didn't make you sick. That's from the world. But I said, I've asked God about his timing a couple times. And a, a small voice came to me one day after prayer, and it said, Brent, tell me a better time. You're going to have to self-isolate because Susan's immune system's been compromised or will be. And so you're going to have to spend time alone. You're going to have to spend time away. So is the rest of the world right now. Tell me a better time, Brandon. So, you know, just time after time, folks, it, it becomes so clear when we listen to that whisper, when we pay attention to what he's trying to say to us, he's got it. 
He's got it for us. He's what we can count on. We can't count on our bank account. We can't count on future business. We can't count on a contract. We can count on what God tells us. I really think that time is short. I think it's really pretty evident to us that time is short. So how are we going to spend that time now? Are we going to worry about things of the world? Are we going to worry about our car versus the neighbor's car? Or are we doing this? Are we doing that? Or are we going to worry about bringing the unsaved to Jesus? Because time is short. And so all those things that distract us and all those things that take our mind away from what God would have us do, what his will is for us and what his will is for our neighbors, that's what's important. And, you know, it's very important to have a support group around you. We have a great life group. Kay and Brad Grote just pour their time and energy into that group. And, and the people that are in that group have been such a blessing to Susan and I. And, and I don't know what we would do sometimes without those guys. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate the prayers, but you got to be real careful because one day I was out mowing the lawn and I thought, you know, I'm going to a lot of Bible studies right now and I'm doing the right things. I'm in a life group and I'm connecting and I'm getting fed all the time. I'm getting fed. But then I thought, what am I doing to feed the hungry? What am I doing to feed my neighbor? And it became very aware to me that Bible studies are good. Life groups are good. But you've got to be the feet in the hands of Jesus. You've got to be the testimony. That's the testimony to an unsaved world. I have more, but I'm sure John's wondering how long I'm going to be up here. Um, just want to go through my notes real quick um, that I don't miss anything. I guess in closing, folks, um, that's my testimony. And... Uh, I, I, I hope that in some way, shape, or form it helped you. Um, I want to read a couple of things. One of them's by my favorite author right now. His name's Reggie, Reggie Campbell. He's just a, a down-to-earth guy. I don't know if I should use that term when we're talking about worldly wisdom, but uh, he's a down-to-earth guy, and he just feeds me every day. And uh, if any of you are interested... Um, I actually have several copies of this book, and I've given several of these books to friends of mine. And his name's Reggie uh, Campbell. He's out of Georgia. But there is another epidemic in the world right now, and I think we're all aware of it, and none of us are aware of it. And it's the FOMO epidemic. Let me read Reggie. FOMO is everywhere. The fear of missing out. FOMO. Men buying the new... The new thing, i got to put my glasses on. Men buying the new thing, be it golf clubs or TVs, we've got to get the new one, the big one, the more feature-rich one because we're afraid of missing out. We're on Instagram looking at pictures of their friends on expensive trips to exotic places. We've got to go there next year. We just can't miss out on that. Where did it come from? Adam was the first carrier of the FOMO virus. He stood there in paradise with everything a man could ask for, but then FOMO showed up. He ate the apple, and it infected him. And it's been passed down through every generation since. God has a different idea.
Maybe God would have us want differently because he knows what satisfies. He knows what fulfills. And his will is that we love and serve people, not things. After all, people are most, his most valued creation. We are made in his image and built for eternity. He even sent his only son to die for us. What if hanging out with God, doing his work and loving and serving people in the only way FOMO is satisfied? I'm a man of God. I'm not a perfect man of God. I still got a lot of things I need to work on. And sometimes they rear up things of old. Sometimes it's new things. I got things to work on. But at the end of the day, tonight when I lay my head on my pillow, I can say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm a man of God. And tomorrow when I wake up, I will say I'm a man of God. And it's because of his grace and mercy that all of us are here. And I hope that more and more we tell the world, the hungry world, what we've got that they can have. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. I love hearing uh, how God's working and has worked. And we all have uh, a story of some kind, right? We were born and we entered this world and, uh, and we were made to exist for all eternity. When each one of us was created and we were formed in our mother's wombs, Psalms 139 says that God was there. He, he was a part of that creative process, knitting us together. There's a component of us that will live for all eternity. And so we've got to deal with this. We've got to acknowledge the condition we're in and what do we do to get right with God so we live for all of eternity, experiencing the life, the fullness of life that Jesus wants us to have. Jesus explained the path to this life that he came to give us. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 34 and 36, this is what Jesus said. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said this, If any of you wants to be my follower, remember Jesus said, The way to life is through me. I'm the gatekeeper. If any of you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, listen to this, so important. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? What is more valuable than a soul? Jesus drilling down into the heart of life. The truth is that we all have a soul. And we can live as though it's fine. Everything's fine. We're happy. Oh, no, I'm happy with what I got. I'm pursuing things. And we can keep ourselves distracted from the truth of the condition of our soul. Or we can have the courage to stop for a minute and to look into the eyes of Jesus and listen to his words, which speak truth into us. There's all kinds of reasons that we can put up. Distractions, things that we think are true. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can believe that. I don't know. And we put all, all of these excuses up. And the truth is that Jesus speaks right into the heart. He says, listen, folk, here's where you're at. And here's what you need to do to fix that. Here's where life is found. And he stands there at the door and calls to us. Jesus makes it clear that in trying to gain happiness in this life, 
apart from him, it's going to result in the loss of life altogether. Don't give in to this trap. Christian, have you gotten off track in your life? Are you chasing the American dream, as Brent said, the pursuit of stuff? Are you staying on track in chasing after Jesus, pursuing a relationship with him? Maybe there's someone here who's never yet entered into a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've never stopped for a minute. Though you've had opportunities, maybe you've never uh, taken advantage of one of those and said, hey, I'm going to stop for a minute. I'm going I'm to consider where I'm at. I'm going to consider the offer that Jesus makes. How do I enter the life that Jesus offers? How do we get into that life? How do we engage what Jesus says we can have? In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul addresses this issue in a number of verses, and we have an opportunity to discover from those verses what is the process, what's the truth of the good news. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says this, For everyone has sinned and falls short of God's glorious standard. The standard that God holds us to in regards to our lives and our souls, in order to be connected to Him for all eternity, the standard is perfection. We've got to live up to the character, the moral code that he designed us to live according to. And the truth is, beginning with Adam and Eve and falling down, trickling down to every single human being that's ever walked this planet, we have all fallen short of that standard. We do not live up to it. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The wages, what we earn because of our sin, is death. Spiritual death, physical death. But... The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The free gift that God offers us. How do we get onto the path that Jesus calls us to? How do we engage the life that he promises? Romans 5.8 says this truth, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So much of the world so much of religion, so many different belief systems says, man, you got to get your act together before you can engage God. You're going to attain salvation at the end of your life if you work hard enough, do the right things, if you become a good moral person, you follow the rules that we have for you, maybe at the end of your life you can attain eternal life. But Jesus does not say it that way. God sent Jesus to the earth to die for us while we were dead in our sins, before we could do anything for ourselves. Because the truth of the gospel involves this truth. We can't do anything to save ourselves. So how do we get saved? How do we experience the salvation that God offers? Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 says this. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, for it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. It's called justification, being made right. It's believing in your heart, right? That is how you're made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you're saved. So in Romans, and there's many other passages that talk about how do we experience this salvation, believing, trusting, expressing that belief and faith is always a part of it. To be justified or made right with God, we've got to put our trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. 
The truth is Jesus came to this earth and walked this life sinlessly. He was accused uh, falsely. He was sent to a cross. He was nailed to a tree. He bled and died for each human being that had ever lived and would ever live. And he paid the price. The Bible calls it atoning for the sin of the world. He paid for it so that we don't have to. The truth is it would cost us our very soul in order to pay the debt that we owe. And that's why it's eternal punishment because we can't pay for it. Even our souls will not pay for it. And yet Jesus offers us a gift of salvation. And what do we got to do? Believe. Put our trust in him. Where do you stand with Jesus today? Have you put your trust in him? Have you entered into the life that he's offering you? These moments come in our lives and uh, preachers can put a little pressure on and you can feel a little manipulation. I just want to be real, real, real transparent. There's none of that in me. I just want you to really look face to face into the eyes of Jesus and consider his offer of life. And I don't want any of you not to have experienced that. And I know that life is found in him. It's the truth. You, of course, have to come to that decision on your own. Salvation comes from no other person, no other one than Jesus alone. Because he paid the price. He died on the cross, and guys, he didn't stay dead. You know the story, but the story's true. He rose from the dead the third day, proving he had the power to forgive sin. So many people can offer you forgiveness of sin. Jesus calls them robbers and thieves. They come only to steal the sheep. Jesus came and he gave his life. He sacrificed himself so that you could have life. D.L. Moody visited a prison once uh, back in his day called the Tombs. And he preached to the inmates there. And after he finished speaking, Moody talked with a number of the men in their cells. In their cells, excuse me. And he asked each prisoner this question. What brought you here? Again and again, he received replies like this. I don't deserve to be here. I was framed. I was falsely accused. I was given an unfair trial. Not one inmate would admit his guilt. Finally, Moody found a man with his face buried in his hands, weeping. And what's wrong with you, my friend? Moody asked. The prisoner responded, my sins are more than I can bear. Relieved to find at least one man who would recognize his guilt and his need for forgiveness, the evangelist exclaimed, thank God for that. Moody then had the joy of pointing him to saving faith in Christ. Would you be willing today to admit your sin before God? It takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage because it's hard to get humble. It's hard to say, hey, I need something from anybody. In America, we're strong, independent. We like to do things for ourselves and not rely on anybody. But the truth is there are things we can't do for ourselves. Faith is all that's required to save you. And saving faith will change your life. Would you bow your heads for just a minute? I want to ask you if you're here today, you've never put your trust in Jesus. I'm kind of an old school guy, and I just want to call you to that. I want to invite you to make a decision today to put your trust in what Jesus has done for you. I want to lead you in a prayer. I want to encourage you that a prayer is not magical. It doesn't save you. It is your faith that will save you, your trust in God. And you can't trick God. He knows your heart. And so where your heart, where's your heart at? Where you at? You may, you may say, well, I don't have all my questions answered. I don't know all the answers. Well, guess what? You don't have to know all the answers to put your trust in Jesus and what he's done for you. In fact, a lot of times doing that leads to finding the answers. But I want to call you to that. 
I want to invite you to pray a prayer with me. If you just say this, um, say this prayer and mean it in your heart, the promise of Scripture is that God will come into your life and bring life to you. So pray along with me if you want. Just say something like this. God, I come to you today admitting that I'm a sinner, admitting that I have fallen short of your standard, and I humbly come before you asking you for forgiveness. I put my trust in what you've done for me in dying on the cross to pay for my sin. I put my trust in you. Please come into my life and make me new. If you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you that again, a prayer is not magical, but faith is all that's required. Faith is all that's required to save you. Saving faith will transform you. I want you to respond today if you prayed that prayer or if you want a word of encouragement, if you need some encouragement. We've got a number that you can text. And again, we all have cell phones, most of us. Just text, I got saved or I want to talk to somebody, just a short message. Text it to the number on the screen, 402-370-6030. It's just an easy way for us to connect with you. We've got people on the other end that will connect with you, and we want to get you some encouragement. We want to pray for you. We want to get you connected to somebody that can help you grow and understand the decision you made. At the end of the day, humbly, as a simple man, I'm calling you to make a decision to follow Jesus, to trust in him. He never fails to deliver on his promise. You will find life, and you'll find it in its fullest. God, thanks so much for calling us to be your children. You have created us. You made us to be connected to you. Father, I pray for each person here, each person watching online, each person that will hear this message. God, I pray against anything that would stop them from trusting in you. Any question, any issue. Father, we have hurts. We've got questions. We've got issues. We've all got things that become obstacles to keep us from that relationship with you, the one who made us. I pray against all those things. I pray that you'd move powerfully to bring us into a relationship with you. You've already done everything that needs to be done. Now you just put the question before us, the choice. We can choose life or not. Father, I pray for each person that life would be what they choose. Thank you for this day and the chance to be out here to worship you. Father, uh, we just celebrate who you are and are so thankful. We pray all this in Jesus' name.